Father, every week we have an opportunity to gather in your presence. We know that you are with us always, and yet you called us as the church to come together on this day that is set aside for you, to join in song and prayer, um, in worship, in the elements of the Lord's table, in sharing in one another's lives, and in the sharing of your word. And today, as we reflect upon the gospel, we reflect upon uh, Joseph and Mary and, and the journey that ultimately would lead to the cross. Help us to see with your eyes, to know in your word what your spirit would have us to hear, to be transformed by your spirit's work. May all glory and honor be given to you. May our hopes and dreams be vested in you, our God, our Savior, and our Lord. We pray this by your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. To you, our God. Amen. Um, in your in your bulletin, there's a little uh, little blurby box uh, somewhere on one of the pages that says Joseph's five declarations. And as we're in the book of Matthew, um, and we are um, we're journeying through the the birth narrative of Jesus. I want us to keep our focus on uh, Joseph. He's really, um, like I said last week, he's the the quote unquote hero of this part of the narrative. He's a righteous man. He's a good man. Um, and um, last week we talked about how he calls Jesus, he gives Jesus his name, and in doing that, Joseph adopts Jesus as his son, as the heir of uh, the house of David, because Joseph was not Jesus' physical father. And therefore, um, all of the authority of being the son of David uh, only passed to him from our human perspective when Joseph chooses to marry Mary, chooses to raise Jesus as his own son, um, chooses to honor God and obey God despite everything that might come from that obedience. But this morning we're going to um, continue and we're going to be in the book of Matthew and we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to look at the second of the declarations that come about because of Joseph. Um, and I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Um, this is the part of the birth narrative uh, that often uh, we love to, to put into um, all of our Christmas pageants, the wise men. Everybody wants to be the wise men. Um, on Facebook somewhere there's a video of a play my wife once did when she was um, running uh, drama and stuff for, um, for uh, a Christian school. And it was about the three wise men. And I believe their names were, what were their names? The three wise men. And Binky, right? Um, and uh, and if I can dig that up, I'll I'll repost it. The kids that were in that will really appreciate being dragged out of the darkness. Anyway, uh, Matthew chapter two and verse one. Um, the chapter one ends with the statement that Mary had given birth to Jesus, um, to a son, and Joseph had called his name Jesus. Now Matthew picks the story up um, in chapter two, and he, it says, "Now after Jesus was born." And it clarifies where Jesus was born. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men, or the Greek word is magoi, or we, we sometimes say magi, um, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now we're going to pick up the narrative um, as we go, but I want to I want to kind of flesh this out so that we see it. We're all familiar. I mean, whether you, if your knowledge of Christmas is limited to the Charlie Brown Christmas special, you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But I want to talk a little bit about why that's so significant. Um, Bethlehem was uh, the home of David. Uh, David was the king of Israel and Judah around 1000 BC, so about a thousand years before Jesus. And for a thousand years, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, kept track of the genealogy of the house of David. Now, around the year 600, the kingdom itself was actually conquered um, by the Babylonians. And the, uh, the heir, we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, but the heir of the line was carried into captivity in Bethlehem, in, into Babylon, and there he had a son and a son, son, and son, 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 son. Um, and, uh, and then they kept track of that line all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. Um, so they're aware of this situation. Bethlehem is important because Bethlehem is where a king would be born. Now, although we don't know for certain, um, and we have to kind of reconstruct the past because we are talking about 3,000 years ago, it seems that what would happen in the kingdom of Judah is when one of the royal wives, and, and remember, these kings had multiple wives, but when of the, one, of, one of the royal wives was expecting a child that was going to be in the line of David, they would leave Jerusalem and they would take the five-mile walk. Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. You can actually see Bethlehem from the site of what would have been King Herod's palace in Jerusalem, um, it's down a valley a little bit on a little ridge, um, and you you would take a journey to Bethlehem, and the wife would birth the child there, so that the child came out of Bethlehem. That was the whole idea. That was where the royal there was a royal palace in Jerusalem, but Bethlehem was where David's family was from. So that's what you did. You you always had your children born in Bethlehem, and then they were crowned king in Hebron. Everybody keeping track of this? Um, I know it's very important. Biblical geography without a map. Anyway, um, this was an important, significant city. However, when the um, when the the kingdom the the kingdom of David was conquered, um, Bethlehem drops off of the archaeological record. It just simply stops existing. It seems to be. Um, the population of Judah goes way, way down, um, and for about 150, 200 years, there's just nobody living there. And then um, it starts to be resettled um, in around 300 uh, BC or so, from what we can tell from the limited archaeology. And then when the Roman Empire starts, the Romans love water. 
Now that sounds really weird. Don't we all love water? But the Romans really loved water. They liked big pools and they liked lots of water in their cities. They did this thing that a lot of ancient people didn't do, which was called bathing. Um, They liked a lot of water. And so the Romans built these massive aqueducts, channels where they used basically gravity. They created a water roller coaster. I wish I were, that's the best way to describe an aqueduct. It uses curves and turns and changes of elevation to speed up the flow of water so that it travels to wherever they want it to be. It's really an engineering masterpiece, these aqueducts. Um, And they built two of them that came out of the hills around Bethlehem. They have really creative terms. They're called the upper aqueduct and the, guess what the other one's called? The lower aqueduct. Yes, the Romans were anything if not creative. Um, And uh, these two aqueducts draw from these two pools and they travel by. So Bethlehem actually became kind of an important site um, for some Roman activity. And to the point that when you conducted a census, and those of you that know the book of Luke, you may, the story of Jesus' birth, um, this may sound familiar to you, when the Roman governor wanted to do a census of the region of Judea, he always used Bethlehem as his headquarters. If you remember from the book of Luke, it says that Joseph takes Mary to Bethlehem because he's of the house and lineage of David um, to be registered with his wife. Um, not a big place. Um, Bethlehem was probably about a thousand people, um, maybe two thousand people. Um, relatively small, um, reasonably, um, reasonably modest uh, settlement. And during the holidays, the hills around Bethlehem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, uh, because Bethlehem was on the road coming north to Jerusalem, the hills around Bethlehem during the holidays would be covered with tents because people would come from miles and miles around to go to Jerusalem and a couple miles is not that far of a walk especially if it saves you money Um, and so they would they would stay out on those hills and they would um, travel in Um, this by the way if you anybody's ever wondering um, uh, what probably why the shepherds are out in a desert place um, in the gospel of Luke is probably because Jesus was born during a Jewish feast and there were people everywhere, all over the place, um, beside the registration and all those things. So, Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea because he's the descendant of David. The king must be born in Bethlehem. Why does Matthew need to tell us this? Because Jesus doesn't grow up in Bethlehem. Jesus grows up in Galilee. And guess what the one place a king of Israel could never come from was? Galilee. Galilee was known as Galilee of the Goyim, the nations. It was a place where everybody's bloodlines were all mixed up with Gentiles and Assyrians and Sumerians. And there were just all these that you could not, you just weren't sure who these people were in Galilee. So Matthew goes through the difficult step of saying Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. He was, number one, adopted by Joseph to be the son of David, and number two, born in Bethlehem. But then we get this second thing, in the days of Herod the king. Now for us, 
you went to Christmas pageants or something. There's a musical about the birth of Jesus that came out this this semester where Herod is played by Antonio Banderas. So now Zorro and Herod will be mixed in my head forever. Um, And Puss in Boots. I'm going to be very confused. Uh, But... Herod, Herod was, and I've mentioned him before, and this may sound familiar to you, Herod was one of the wealthiest, best-known people in the Roman world. He was so wealthy and so powerful that he counted amongst his close personal friends Caesar Augustus himself. His sons, all, with the last name Herod, that's how it works, um, grew up in Rome and grew up as friends and companions of future Roman emperors. Herod was so wealthy that he sponsored the Olympics one year in a city that he built solely for that purpose. Herod dredged a a harbor at a place called Caesarea Maritima um, where all of the trade of the entire east that came through from Arabia and from uh, India and Persia and Iran, what is today Iraq, all that came to Herod's port, Caesarea Maritima, and sailed to Rome and the Greek world. He was so tremendously wealthy, he was one of the few people in the world um, who could do the things that he did. However, Herod's life ended in tremendous tragedy. Um, These events occur about B.C. 4. In the three years before Jesus' birth, Herod had to execute three of his sons for trying to uh, take over the kingdom. Um, The first couple he executed privately. The third one he just did it in public and tried to send a message. Um, around this time, Herod was bedridden. Um, by the way, killing family members was nothing new for Herod. He also executed two of his wives. Um, he was bedridden. He, um, he had really, really terrible gout, so it was difficult. It was very painful for him to walk. Um, he appears to have had some kind of um, internal um, cancer of some kind toward the end of his life. Uh, and... Um, Herod spent most of his time in his winter palace in Jericho, which is about, it's about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. Um, but Herod had established a kingdom based on his tremendous, I mean, just a cult of personality. And there were two kinds of people in the world. You either loved Herod or you despised Herod. There was no in-between. The Jews were not particularly fond of him. They didn't care for him. Um, He wasn't a Jew by birth. He had converted um, as an adult. Uh, He was uh, of questionable moral character. Executing wives and children tends to indicate that. Um, But he had built his kingdom on violence. And that that was something that didn't sit well for people. So when Jesus is born on this day in Bethlehem and suddenly two, three, five, ten, fifty, we don't know how many of them were, wise men or magi show up from the east and they ask a question. They say, where is he who is born 
king of the Jews. And the message gets to Herod and he says, hey, now what now? What do you mean he who is born king of the Jews? All of his children, by the way, are either dead or adults. What is this question you're asking me? What's going on? Herod hears this and he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. All right, and he asks them, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Where's the Christ supposed to be born? Now this is one of those moments where you have to ask the question. All right, I have a couple of questions. You may have them too. Number one, um, how does Matthew know about this? How does he know this story? How does he know what happened in the palace of Herod the king probably before Matthew was even born? How does he know this story? I'll let you ruminate on that. I'd love to hear some theories. I have a theory, but I'm not going to tell you. You know, and no, you can't say the Sunday school answer. God told him. There's got to be an explanation. Anyway, second question. When he gets all of these chief priests and scribes together and he asks them where the Christ to be born in verse uh, in verse five, isn't it kind of odd that they have the answer right there? Do you ever think about that? Like they don't sit there and go, well, let's do some research. We'll find out. They're like, oh, the Messiah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's supposed to be born. And my third question is, how did Herod not know that? How did Herod not know? Um, because Herod's one of Herod's palaces, called the Herodium, is actually right outside of Bethlehem. It's enormous. He actually cut the top off of a mountain and hollowed it out. I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but that's really what he did. Um, he cut the top off of one mountain, he hollowed it out, he built a palace inside the mountain, kind of like a Bond villain, right? I mean, if the guy wasn't bad enough already, he's become a Bond villain. Um, and then he was actually buried there. They found his tomb in the, in the uh, early 2000s. They, they know the answer. Why doesn't Herod know the answer? And... We know we're going to get to this, his response, which is very, very violent. But we have this moment, and I, and I, I want to kind of just build this up. We read this moment, and it makes a really nice story, but there's a lot going on here. There's, there's three ways that Jesus is confirmed as the Messiah in this moment when they know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, all right? There's three ways that Jesus is confirmed as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The first way, first way that it's confirmed is he's actually born there. Joseph takes him there, takes Mary there, he's born there, right? That's with Joseph and Mary. The second way that he's confirmed is by the Magi. Um, the Magi or the wise men, they come from which direction? The east. Um, for a long time, I, I actually said that the Magi were Persians um, because that's what all the Greek writers used to say. They always said Magi is a Persian word. And then I found out that Magi is not a Persian word. 
Um, it was one of those cases where people just repeated things a lot and, and everybody assumed it to be true. Uh, Magi is actually an Assyrian word. I know you guys don't care about this, all right? It's a late Babylonian word, and it means the one who knows. Madu. Um, it means the one who knows, the scholar, the doctor. I like to think they were all PhDs. Um, they, uh, and so they were wise men, but they were from the east. Well, what people often forget about the, the biblical people of Israel is there was an enormous Jewish population that lived in Babylon. Um, and so everybody wants to say, well, these are heathens, they're, you know, they're, they're Persians, and they come and they look for Christ, but they may have been Jews. They, they may have been coming from that Babylonian population. We really don't know, but one way or the other, we have this recognition of the Messiah's arrival by a group from outside, an external group, somebody beyond the, the limits of Judaism proper. So we have an internal moment where Joseph has Jesus born in Bethlehem. He brings him there. And so to the Jewish mind, to the insider's mind, yes, he's the king, he's the son of David, he's the Messiah. But then we have an outsider's confirmation which comes from these magi who see these stars, whatever the star is, and there are 873 explanations for what star they saw. It was a comet. It was Venus. It was um, Doctor Who's TARDIS. I mean, it, it, who knows? Who knows what it was? They see something in the sky that indicates to them they need to head toward Judea because the Messiah is going to be born there. But they get there. They don't know where they're going. They go to Jerusalem because that's where the king is supposed to live. They ask around about it. And then comes the third confirmation, um, which is the testimony of Scripture. So we have an internal internal confirmation. Joseph has Jesus born. He takes him to Bethlehem, so he's born as the king of the Jews. We have an external confirmation. The, the Magi see the, the star and they come and they say, all right, he's born king of the Jews. And then we have Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which is quoted here um, by the chief priests and scribes who say that Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And of course, then the Magi go there and that's they find Jesus. So this sign of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, it has three um, arrows pointing toward the truth without any of them definitely, definitively, clearly being like a blinking red sign that says Jesus is the Messiah. So here's my big idea. When all of the evidence points in one direction, what does it take for us to accept the truth they're pointing, it's pointing toward? See, Matthew tells this story this way, this narrative this way, because his hearers, they need to, they need to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And they need the multiple strands of evidence because Jesus didn't walk around wearing a t-shirt that said, Son of David. There, there weren't signs, there weren't posters, there weren't come meet the Messiah today moments. Um, yeah, he's doing miracles and all that stuff, but most of the people that Matthew is writing for will have never seen Jesus do a miracle. Most of the people that are reading this narrative that Matthew is writing weren't there when Jesus walked on the sea, weren't there when Jesus healed the blind and the lame. They weren't there, they certainly weren't here when he was born. So what Matthew does is he presents multiple lines of evidence that all point toward one inevitable truth, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. It's true inside, it's true outside, it's true from Scripture. And often, um, we tend to think of faith as a blind thing. We just jump. And sometimes I guess that's true. But often faith is also just letting go of our, our inclination not to believe what God is making very clear from multiple points of view. See, sometimes faith is just saying, okay, I see how this is going. Following the evidence to its logical conclusion what do I mean by that wouldn't it be nice if the gospel was written across the sky in neon letters so it was undeniable fact and we could just point people toward it and say believe in Jesus it's written on the sky it's kind of important Wouldn't that be great? And you know, there was a day, there was a time, and I grew up in kind of the end period of this, where in our culture there was a sense that the Bible was true even if people didn't read it. So they might have a Bible sitting on there. And when I was in in Bible college in the 90s, we had this uh, evangelism class. And the whole idea was you knocked on somebody's door, you talked to them, you tried to get them to let you in to talk to them about Jesus. And I won't get into it. There was some weird stuff in the class, like answering their phone for them, taking their kids into other rooms so they weren't distracting you. I'm like, no, not doing that. Um, But the idea was, hey, you've got a Bible in your house. Do you have a Bible in your house? And people... When I was a kid, pretty much everybody had at least like an old, big, white, Catholic family Bible. You know, Jesus was Swedish, the dish behind his head, that kind of thing. Um, And you could have them open the Bible and you could read it. And you would say, well, the Bible says, and you would read a verse from the Bible. And you would say, well, the Bible says this. And they would go, oh my goodness, I didn't know the Bible said that. Now that I know the Bible says that, oh, it must be true. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. We don't live in a world where people look at the Bible and go, oh, it must be true. I'll never forget, I had a friend come uh, to church one time and visit with us, and I was preaching through Jonah at the time. And he asked me, straight-faced, he was not joking. So church kids, you're all going to get a laugh out of this. If you haven't been around church, you might, you might not understand the weirdness of this question. He asked me if Jonah was one of the 12 disciples. He's like, he's one of the 12 disciples, right? I was like, no, no, not Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a whale. He's like, oh, that guy. That was, that was the limit of his knowledge of the Bible. He had no, no comment. He knew there were 12 disciples. Jesus was in it. You know, it was like 
Jesus' autobiography or something. But other than that, he had no clue. Most people don't, the, the Bible holds no authority for most people. You can't just use one line of authority and say this is what is true. Thankfully, God knows what he's doing. And he always testifies to his truth in multiple vectors, multiple lines. When we're talking about the truth of, of God's word, or the power of the Holy Spirit or whatever, rather than a, just saying it's true, we can look at the multiple factors. For example, close with this. How do we prove there's a God? You say, well, I mean, look at the universe. It must have a designer. Must it? Must it? Is that enough? Is it simply enough to be able to make one argument and that argument is all we need? How many of you have tried that with your kids? Does it work? All right. Well, I, I, it's true. My, your room, you should clean your room. Why? Because I told you to. All right, give me a second argument. All right? So we look at the universe. We say, well, is there God? Well, there must be a designer, right? The, the, the argument, the clockworker. Clock there must be a designer. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I can believe that the universe was designed and not believe in the God of the Bible. But then we can look at other aspects of things. We can look at the transformation that occurs in the lives of people who put their faith in, in Christ. And we can say, look, God took somebody who was broken and, and healed them. And, and does that alone prove there's a God? No, not necessarily. And then we could look at the church, and not, not the church the way that you know everybody kind of criticizes the church and all that stuff, but look at... Look at how God brings together people from, from different backgrounds and, and, and transforms their lives and brings them into fellowship and unity and ministry. And, and we could say, well, look at that. And individually, all the little strands, and I could keep going on all these little things, individually, all the little strands, maybe they don't prove that there's a God. That there's a God that loves us. There's a God who wants to redeem us from sin. We... But when we start to take all of those strands and we start to look at them together, it starts to get harder and harder not to accept there must be truth here. It may be uncomfortable truth. It may be difficult truth. But it's there. And see, in this situation, as Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Christ, this second element, he takes three different threads and brings them all together to weave together this sign that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Three different testimonies confirming that moment. And in our lives, sometimes, something that we have to take in faith. It's not about just one straight line. Sometimes there's multiple lines converging. And the hardest thing for us, and the thing that Herod struggles with, is being able to step back, look at all those converging lines, and just believe. That all those pieces coming together. You say, but it doesn't come together the way I want it to. It doesn't fit the way that I would like it to. 
But as you see those converging lines coming together, sometimes we just have to let go of what we want and believe what we see. Believe what is true and what is real. I understand the challenges to faith. I understand the difficulty of taking the leap of believing. As an atheist who can't get past Jesus, I would like nothing more than to not believe. But I can't. Because I look at what Jesus, who Jesus is, and if he's one one hundredth of who he is in the Bible, he's worth following. And I see what Jesus does in the lives of people. And even though maybe it doesn't happen with everybody, I've seen enough of his work to know that it's true. And I look at what he does in the church. And I look at what he does in creation. And I'm left to choose either my obstinate refusal to accept all the strings coming together. Or just say, okay, I believe. And every one of us comes to a time where we have to make that choice. Will I believe? Well, I have more questions. I'm going to go to the grave with questions. Well, it doesn't all make sense. Brothers and sisters, it still don't make sense to me in a lot of ways. But as I look at all the threads converge, I had to choose my will or God's word, and I chose him. And maybe you're worshiping with us today, you're gathered with us, you've been exploring this thing, you've been talking about it, you've been asking questions, getting through it. Friends, at some point we just have to let go and trust where the evidence is taking us and believe. And I encourage you to take that leap. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, I can't say following you was easy. There's a part of me that always fights, seeks an alternative path, seeks another road. And yet time and time again, I come back to all that you have done, the ways that you have revealed yourself. Father, help us. Help us in our journey of belief, of faith. Help those who are exploring, who are journeying alongside us, asking questions, being en- engaging in the conversation. Help them to see, to trust, to believe, to decide to follow you. May all glory and honor and power be given to your name here and across the world.